Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, looking at Paul's letter here in chapter 12, verse 18 through 29. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him, humbly asking for his help in understanding this text. Our gracious God, we have depended upon you so far at every step of the way in this liturgy, in this service. We've depended upon your grace, and we show our dependence in this prayer, O God, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of your grace in this great text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hear now the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we come this morning to the last series, the last sermon in this five-part series that I have called Reformation Ologies. And this is a, a, a select list of ologies, of studies of theology, fields of theology, and we're looking at them from a Reformed perspective. That is to say, we're looking at them from a biblical perspective. And worship is the name of the game here. This is our final ology. This is Reformed doxology. We just sang the doxology, praise God. And so you get an idea as to what that word means. Doxa means praise or glory. Doxology is a word of praise. It is glorification in song. That's what we're talking about this morning, we began our series with Reformed teleology, and we saw that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. We then looked at Reformed protology and Reformed eschatology. Big words that just mean 
study of first things and the study of last things. And we saw that our aim is a difficult one. We want to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But that's difficult when we struggle against the threefold enmity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then we also were heartened, I hope we were, by the reality of the trajectory of victory that God is bringing us to. He's bringing His people. He's bringing this earth. He has been victorious, and He is leading us that way as well. Last week, we recalled the ground of our glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, the ground of our being, the ground of our conversion, and the ground of our growing in life. The ground is God's saving truth, His Word. And so now, we come full circle to what we are called to do, to worship God with all awe main point this morning is Christians glorify God and enjoy Him forever as our fundamental act of worship. Now, preceding the text here is the exhortation to pursue peace with everyone, to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and to see to it that no one would commit apostasy. Those are some strong exhortations. Our text is the climactic point in this letter. Having argued persuasively for the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, having argued for the perfect and finished work of Christ as sacrifice, the once for all time sacrifice, and as high priest, the best priest at the order of Melchizedek, after talking about Christ's ongoing, beautiful, and sufficient work of intercession for us, his people, and having given the church the example of the wilderness generation as something of not to follow, he now makes one final plea. He now issues one final warning to his readers. He wants all of us to avoid apostasy, to avoid falling away. And why? Because apostasy is counterproductive. To what God has made all of us to be. As we read in John 4, Jesus says the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That is why we exist. And apostasy is running the opposite direction. God desires worshipers of him, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the climax of this letter is set in an extraordinary and phenomenal tale of two mountains. In this tale, the author compares and contrasts two events of God's revelation of himself. And then he will plead with us to respond the right way to God's revelation. Look again with me at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So in this text, we see that what we have not come to. He tells us what we have not come to in this first section. We have not come to scary Sinai. He intends to strike godly fear into our spiritual bones by referring to this scary Sinai episode. He tells us that we have not come to 
this earthly, terrifying, mountaintop experience of God, which would be troubling in its own right to have people talk about having that mountaintop experience of God. This is one that the author tells us would be frightening if you experienced it the way that these Israelites had done. And so he mentions seven descriptions or images of Mount Sinai here. This is the mountain that can be touched. There was a blazing fire. There was darkness, gloom, a tempest, a trumpet sound, and a terror-striking voice. He is, of course, referring back to Exodus 19 and 20, some of which I read in the Scripture reading, and some of which was read in the call to confession of sin. Hebrews tells us that everyone was so terrified that nobody wanted to speak with God. We don't have that problem today, do we? Everyone seems to be so casual with God. Even blasphemous. Yesterday, uh, the uh, good old Ken Godwin and I uh, went to a football game. And uh, this is not in my notes, but I just, just thought of it. And there's this one person, they're all dressed for, I guess, Halloween. And there's one guy who was dressed as Jesus. He had a crown of thorns on his head and, and everything. And it's like, you're, just, you're, you're messing. You're messing around. You're playing with, with holy fire. He didn't have a thought. Or if his only thought was, to disregard the holiness of God. You don't have that here. These Israelites were scared stiff. They begged Moses to intercede for them. They needed an intercessor. They urged Moses to be their mediator. They say, you talk to him, Moses. We cannot talk to him. If we talk to him, we will die. You talk to him. Maybe they thought Moses would be spared. You talk to him. We can't. And they experienced great alarm because they knew that it was their holy creator who was speaking to them. And they knew that they were unholy. If enormous peril, as we read in Exodus 19, awaited the animals who just happened to touch the mount. Not that they were willfully, you know, defiantly touching the mount that God says, don't, let, don't touch animals. If enormous peril awaited these animals who touched them out, can you imagine the destruction that would come upon all those who willfully approach this mount, who casually approach this mount? It doesn't matter. God doesn't care if I approach this mount or not. I'm going to do it anyways. Can you imagine that? It's, it's unthinkable. Can you think of a time at which you were acutely aware of how scared you were, perhaps as a child, you thought that there were monsters in your room. That's a scary thought. Perhaps you've had a really scary bad dream. Or as a parent, maybe one of your children was, was gone for not even a minute, but you didn't know where they were. That's terrifying. Maybe you love your parents so much, the thought of your parent dying is, causes you to tremble. Or maybe you realize that hell awaited you if you died that very night without repenting, without coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and that thought terrified you. The Israelites had every reason to be frightened. They, unholy that they are, experienced here this holy God. 
Even Moses, we're told, trembled with great trepidation. That great mediator, that great intercessor, the one called by God to lead this people out of Egypt. Even he trembled with great trepidation at the sight of the fear-producing appearance of God because he knew what we all should know. We see here in Hebrews 12, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. For our God is an all-consuming fire. Well, we might say, well, that's just an Old Testament experience. Well, it is an Old Testament experience. But it is also a New Testament one, as our text clearly communicates. Because he even says, you have come to this. You have come to something else, but You've come to something greater. Our God remains an all-consuming fire. Remember the disciples in Mark chapter 4, they reacted rightly with fear at the sight of Jesus' power. Filled with great fear, they asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And even in that episode, their fear did not draw them closer to Jesus. They, there was a more, more of a distance. He's different from us. He's not like us exactly in every way. The wind, the sea, obey him? Who can this be? Who can control the wind and the sea? But God. At this point, in Hebrews 12, as we are considering this, we, we, the readers, breathe a brief sigh of relief because the author has told us specifically that we have not come to God in this way. Again, verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched. And on he goes. But can you imagine if we had? Can you imagine if we did come to God in this way that the Israelites had come to God. Do you think we'd show a bit more reverence? It's marvelous. It's remarkable. It's it's terrifying to even consider just being at the base of a mountain when the mountain itself is shaking and there's smoke and there's noise. There's fire. Who would want to be in that? Martin Luther got so scared at a thunderstorm. He devoted his whole life to the Lord out of fear that he would be struck with lightning. Our worship service is very plain, and that's a good thing because the types and shadows have passed away. That's a significant part of this letter. Types and shadows, they're gone. We have the substance So we have a more plain worship service. We don't have blood across the walls here. We don't have anything, just we don't have dead animals right in front of us. Their bodies torn apart. We don't have that. Can you imagine if we did? Maybe we'd have a greater sense of something significant is happening here. We are relating to someone who is not us. And this is terrifying. 
Maybe I'm just a wuss, but you guys, you guys know that I have chickens, and I've talked about some chickens that I like better than others, and there's one that I don't really care so much for. But I can't, I can't, um, I can't kill that thing myself. It's just a little chicken that I eat every, every day. I can't wrap my mind around just ending this little thing's life. But that was the lot of the Israelite every single day. Here's a lamb. Here's a goat. Here's a bull. Here's a dove. Killing it. Giving it to the priest, right? And eating a meal with God. Blood splattering everywhere. Basins upon basins with blood in them because of all of the substitutionary work that God is doing through those animals. It is terrifying. But you have not come to that. You and I don't come to that. You and I don't come to that terrifying voice of God. We cry out not in terror, but in praise for the sufficient mediator, Jesus Christ. We cry out. We ought to cry out. If we don't, the rocks will. We cry out this morning in song with our prayers, with our amens. We cry out in praise to God, to Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men, because he is sufficient, because he has done it all, because he has paid it all. The terror of the law has been pacified by the peace of Christ's shed blood for you and me. This is not to say that there was anything wrong with the law. Paul over and over again says that. It's not, it's not the law's fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. You're the worst. I'm the worst. Be better. Problem, I can't. We can't. We need someone else. And thanks be to Christ, we have someone else. We have him we have his sufficient, final, full work of redemption given to us, his righteousness imputed to us. Praise be to God. That's what we get to do. We don't have to cower in a corner. I wonder what God's going to do to me now. Oh, praise God for what he has done for you now in Christ. Verse 22 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So rather than coming to this earthly, scary Sinai, we have come to the heavenly Zion. Instead of experiencing a revelation from God which produces terror, this new revelation brings blessings, joy, celebration, and truly awe-inspired worship. He says to us that we have come. Right now, this very moment, literally, we have come to what he says here. We have come to what he describes. Yes, when Christ returns, there will be a fullness not currently known, not currently experienced. But this text here, these verses 
are not an all future, distant future. I can't wait for that to happen. No, he says it is now. Even now, this moment, you are coming to this. One author says, coming together with a body of believers regularly on Sunday to offer praise to God is a picture of what goes on in heaven. So we have seven descriptions or images like he had given us in the previous section. But here, here we have seven of what we have come to. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, the church of the firstborn, God as judge, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus and to the sprinkled blood. Let's go through these very briefly. Heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Three descriptions of the same heavenly reality, the same place. You might recall that earthly Mount Zion was the place that King David had captured from the Jebusites. He made it his home, Jerusalem, and it was there that the temple would be built. It was there where true worship would take place. In the book of Revelation, it is the place where God, the Lamb of God, is reigning. This is God's holy hill. The author here is just telling us that we have come into the very presence of God. As one of our elders often reminds us, when we worship, this is heaven breaking in. Coming here. Or you can think of it this way, that our spirits are ascending heavenward, joining choirs of angels. We're experiencing this even now. As we worship, we do so with myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. You can't even count them. They're so innumerable, perhaps more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heavens. Who knows? Thousands, millions, billions, gazillions. That's a lot. And these Innumerable angels are having a celebration like no other. They're having a worship experience like no other. This term festival gathering refers to just a gathering for a special occasion. And what could be more special than worshiping God? The very reason why we exist is the huge and joyful assembly. Just think of the Olympics times infinity. All the, the, the colors and the gifts and the songs, the banners. Here we have the angels in heaven worshiping their God. But the angels are not the only ones that are partying all day or that are celebrating, that are reverencing all day. We have the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Now, the ESV has assembly, which is an acceptable word, assembly or church. They're the same, the same Greek word. This phrase brings us to others in the presence of God. And you, don't, you won't know this unless you knew the Greek, but it says that the word firstborn here is plural. It's important because often in Scripture, when we think of the word firstborn, we think of Christ, who is the firstborn of the dead, firstborn over all creation, which is true. But because we are joined to him, what is his becomes ours. As Christ is the firstborn of the dead, so are those who trust in him alive in heaven, even now worshiping God. Here we have a reference to what we call the church triumphant, the church in victory, in heaven, worshiping God with the angels, the myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. And so with this phrase, the author is connecting New Testament believers with Old Testament saints 
The idea of being enrolled in heaven is the same as being found here in the, in the book of life. The assembly is officially registered in this heavenly book of names. Oh, to find yourself in that book. What a, what a grace. All those sanctified by Christ in the Old Testament and in the New Testament who have died are gathered together in joyful celebration of our joyous God. And so the picture here is of the church militant, us here on earth, what we have come to, join with the church triumphant in the heavens. We are worshiping with them, or rather, they are worshiping with us. This is what we enter into. We come into the presence of God as full members of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. But he goes on here, God, the judge of all. So the author wants us to see that we are coming to God as judge of all. But in this context, this is a good kind of judgment. This is a judgment in your favor. It's a picture of good judgment, of a blessing, of, of judging you righteous. Because you cannot come into God's presence to worship him if you are unrighteous. Who would dare enter into his presence to worship his holy name without first having been declared righteous? And so you and I do not come to God in worship as condemned. We don't come here worshiping God as guilty anymore, but as innocent and even more righteous, as righteous saints. Not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done. Because God makes spirits righteous. As we see in the next section, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that's what we come to. This is a subset, most likely, of that assembly of the firstborn. It's a reference, I think, to those in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith that we read of, those men and women who persevered to the end, who were given the grace of faith by the Lord. God, who was judge over all, saw that Christ was their faithful mediator, and he perfected them on the basis of what Christ has done. Not on the basis of what these men and women did in their lives of faithfulness, no. Because even the most holy, as we confessed, have but a a small beginning of obedience. Abraham would cling to nothing but Christ as object of his salvation. And so we see here is that we come also to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Surely our spirits jump for joy when we see here that we come to Jesus. It's great that we would come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That sounds awesome. It's great that we come to people like us, brothers and sisters who preceded us. It's wonderful to to worship God with one another. But here, you come to Jesus, to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant the greater covenant. It is no heavenly celebration. It is no worship service if Jesus is not there. It's it's pitiful how some cults will try to comfort us, try to get us to to buy in when they say, well, there's a great reality, there's a great new earth. Okay, is Jesus going to be there? Well, he's not going to be with you because you're not one of the 144,000. 
You know, you don't get to be really with him, or you, you don't get, if you're not like top-tier Mormon status, third level of the third level of heaven, you're not going to be really with Jesus. They try to comfort us with a Jesusless heaven. And there are many books today that tell us, supposedly, that they've, the people have gone, uh, they've died, they've gone to heaven, they've come back to tell the story, and I don't believe those for a moment. We have good biblical reasons not to believe them. But interestingly, often in those narratives, who's absent in the description is Jesus. Where's Jesus in all this thing? Great, there's a rainbow horse. Okay, that sounds exciting to see. But where's Jesus? Would you want to go to heaven, even if that meant that Jesus wasn't there? Trick question, it's not heaven. Your prize, your treasure, your mediator, your high priest, the lover of your soul, you come to Jesus, and you're coming to Jesus even now. This is what you have come to, he says. What a joy. Yes, one day we will come to Jesus and we will see him fully. Or rather, he will come to us and bring us to himself. But with eyes of faith, we see through this text that even now we come to Christ. Psalm 22 says that Jesus is actually the worship leader in a service like this. I am not your worship leader. Psalm 22 says that Jesus is bringing us into the Father's presence, and he's leading us in worship through psalms, through songs, through his preached word. He is leading us from start to finish. And so it is only right that we come to him as the mediator of the new covenant. And we come to him because he he caused us to come to him, because he drew us by the cords of his love, by grace. We come, we see, to sprinkled blood that is better than Abel's. The author zeroes in on Christ's specific work. He personifies the blood of Jesus, saying that it, it speaks. It's saying that we come to this precious blood of Christ. His blood becomes our blood. His death becomes our death. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His resurrection becomes ours. His reign in heaven becomes ours as well. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. In Hebrews 11.4, the author says that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And he was righteous. He was righteous by faith. In fact, he's the first in this hall of faith to be mentioned. And the author is spanning redemptive history from Abel to Christ. And he's saying, as good as Abel was, he is no Jesus. As great as his blood was, because he was innocent and murdered, as beautiful as that blood was, it doesn't even compare to the blood of Jesus. Even as it spoke, it could not speak salvation. It couldn't speak it ultimately, because it fails, just like every other blood of every other person, except for the blood of one, the blood of Jesus This is what we come to now in part, and certainly what we come to in full when Jesus returns. Dear ones, corporate heavenly worship is gospel-only worship. 
One author says, we relive the gospel every time we gather as a church to worship. Let's consider what we've come to. It says that we come to Mount Zion. How did we get to Mount Zion? How are we, and we are here, we're, we're, we're there rather, we are in Mount Zion right now. How did we get here? What did you do to get there? Nothing. We get to heavenly Mount Zion through the Jesus-mediated, spirit-ascending ministry. We get to worship God because of what Christ has done for us. Why are all of the heavenly angels rejoicing? Why are they decked out in festal gathering, having the time of their lives? Why? Well, they're rejoicing because their God made them. But we're also told in, in Luke's gospel that they rejoice over the conversion of sinners. They're rejoicing over God's work in your life. And because the Father is seeking people to worship Him, surely these angels are likewise rejoicing because not only did God save you, He has made you to be His worshiper. And so they are rejoicing with you that now there's more to worship this triune God. How is the assembly enrolled in heaven. How can that be? Because our names are found in the Lamb's book of life. Did we write our names there? Did the Lord give us this book and say, okay, if you want to be in here, write your name? Yes, we believed. But even that belief, even that trust is a grace from God. But we would not trust in Jesus if he had not given us that faith. And so our names are written in that Lamb's Book of Life, written in blood, indelible ink, a word that speaks better than the blood of Abel. How can coming to God as judge be a beautiful thing? Because of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You come to God as judge because he has declared you righteous in his sight. And so you can come boldly. You can come boldly to the throne of grace, trusting in the mediator for his work of intercession. How can this be? How can the spirits of the righteous be made perfect? Because again, of the life of Christ that is given to them, is given to us. We have been declared righteous because of what God has done for us in Christ. Dear ones, at every point of every single worship service, we hear the gospel. At every single point. Not one point here is without the gospel. We have our liturgy. We have our elements of worship. We have, our, we have a, a progression of the call to the benediction. And every single step along the way, drips with grace. The call to worship God is a gracious call. You only hear that call because of God's grace. The fact that he would even let us be in his presence is a huge demonstration of great grace because of how unholy we are in Adam and because of of how holy he is. But he saved us. We worship him. And so he calls us to worship him. What grace is that? The call to confession of sin. 
We confess our sins. We are thankful that we can confess our sins, that we actually see that we are sinners. That sight is a work of God's grace. The scales in our eyes have been lifted, and we see how abominable are our ways, how nasty, how wicked our sinfulness. And so we confess. Confess means to say the same thing. That is to say, to say the same thing that God says. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And so we confess, yes, we have sinned. And what comes after that call to confession of sin? But assurance of pardon. If you trust in Jesus, he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Grace. We sing songs, not because we just love to sing. Some of us don't love to sing. Perhaps this might be the only time in the week that some of you do sing. But you sing. And why do we sing? Because of who God is, because he has given us a song in our hearts to sing. The song of salvation for crying out loud. And yes, for crying out loud, we sing. Because of what God has done for us. We give. We give tithes and offerings. Why do we do that? Why do we give? Some kind of legalistic ritual? Well, I have to give. We get to give. Why do we get to give? Because God. Because God gave. He has given himself. He has given us his only begotten son. He has given us the spirit to live in us, to work through us. We give. We're generous because God is the most infinitely generous. And he has given us so much. We read the scripture. We hear the word of God preached. And why do we do that? Because we come to the one who alone has the words of eternal life. The life, the words of grace. We come to hear God's word of grace read, preached. We pray, and we pray a lot in every single service. Why do we pray? Because we can't do anything on our own. We pray in the name of our only mediator, high priest, whose blood intercedes on our behalf. And it is much better than the blood of Abel. And we have two sacraments. We have the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And such gifts of grace these are. In baptism, we are reminded that we are washed, not by our own self-giving, We are washed by blood. We are washed by whose blood? Not your blood, not my blood, Jesus' blood. And we are nourished at this table. Not by your life. Not a mystery of of how you you can impart life to another person by eating this bread. No, we are nourished by the life of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus. And at the end, the benediction just means a pronouncement of blessing. We receive this blessing. We lift up our hands to receive God's blessing because of what Jesus has done for us. At every point of every service, we hear the gospel. And so, what do we do? The author applies these great truths to us on, and helps us, he exhorts us on how to respond. 
Verse 25, see that you not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Refuse, refuse not to hear God. And when he tells us not to refuse to, to hear him who is speaking, he's really calling us to faith. He's calling us to trust him who is speaking from heaven. The author is calling us to exercise faith in God. He's calling us to exercise trust to pursue Christ. Now, for some here in this, in this body of people, they might need to hear this call for the very first time and truly trust in Jesus. This is the, the church, is the assembly of the saints here at Cross Creek. But in any gathering of this size, it's not unthinkable that some at this point do not know Jesus as their mediator, as their savior. And so that's, there's, a, there's a call here. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse him. He's calling. Don't refuse him. God has spoken in these last days in his son. He has authenticated this gracious message by the many signs and wonders that Jesus has done. And so this plea here is clothed with a serious warning. If we do not have faith, then our situation will be far worse than what the Israelites had. It'll be far worse for us than for them if we today neglect so great a salvation. God shook the earth, we're told. Soon he will shake all of creation. He will come to judge. What remains is only that which cannot be shaken. God, his kingdom, his people, the new Heavenly order wherein righteousness and God's people dwell. These will not be shaken. These will remain. And so let us not have a deliberate and willful refusal to trust in him for salvation. Instead, let us run into and remain in the kingdom of impenetrable gates. And for others here, we hear this call and we say, yes, I, I do believe in Jesus. I do trust in Jesus for my salvation. And he's talking to believers. He doesn't want believers, even now, to refuse to hear God when he speaks in his word. And so what do we pray? But Lord, give us increase of faith. Help us to be submitted to your word when you speak from heaven. Help us to believe the promises that you have given us. Because it's hard to believe them sometimes when we see that so much evil threatens to undo us. Help us to see where our identity truly lies. Give us more faith, we pray. Shall we refuse him? Or shall we say, to whom shall we go, O Lord? For you alone have words of eternal life. We have faith. Verse 28 Moving on, it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So faith and gratitude. Faith naturally demonstrates itself with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Because we have received this unshakable God and his perfect kingdom, a perfectly acceptable and appropriate response is a thankful heart. And how can it not be? What incredible gift of grace that we have received. A thankless heart 
is really a faithless heart. Faith and thanksgiving go, go together. If you trust in Jesus, you know, you know what he has saved you from. You know your own wretchedness. You know your own dependence on, on him. When we see the freedom that we've been given by God, freedom from the devil, freedom from the wicked ways of the world, freedom from our sick sin, and most importantly, freedom from the white-hot wrath of God, when we see this, it is impossible for our hearts not to pour forth with thanksgiving. The more we understand our sin, the more we understand grace, the more we can express thanksgiving. There's this scene in The Count of Monte Cristo, the movie version. Book and movie, two different, okay, two different um, stories for the most part. But there's a scene when Edmond Dantes has, has just escaped from Chateau d'If, the house of death. And he, he escapes, and he is washed ashore, and he gets up rejoicing. Yes, I'm free. I was innocent, and now I'm free. And he's just running on the seashore, exuberant, joyful. And if you've seen the movie, you know that there are people who are watching him, and they're pirates. There are some nasty guys, okay? They're thieves. They, they steal stuff, and they, they pillage, and they, they don't treat people kindly. And so Dantes is, finds himself in a pickle, because here the leader is presented with a dilemma himself. It just so happened that one of his own has stolen. His name is Jacopo, and he has stolen from some of the loot that the team had gotten. The leader is in a pickle. What am I going to do? I, I got to kill this guy. I don't want to show him mercy. But he's the best knife fighter everyone has seen. And he's been useful. So what do I do? Well, here, Evan Dantes is like, okay, I, I'm at your mercy. And he says, you're going to fight. You're going to fight to the death. And people will have a little bit of sport. People will see that I've extended mercy to Jacobo, given him a, a chance to redeem himself, and, you know, you can serve on our crew. And they have a knife fight, and very quickly, Edmund Dantes takes down Jacopo, but doesn't kill him. And there is this exchange between Dantes and Jacopo that Jacopo says, I am forever your man. He was saved from certain death. He was going to die. And yet he didn't. Grace was shown him. And he committed himself to Dantes the rest of his life. Because his life was full of gratitude for what Dantes had done. How much more should our lives be characterized by thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us? Because Jesus didn't just spare us. He took upon himself that penalty. He got up on the cross himself and allowed others to crucify him. You know, in Jacopo and in Dante's case, they're both alive. But in Jesus' case, he's dead. He dies on the cross, pays a penalty. And of course, three days later, he rises. And it is to him that we are coming in heavenly worship. Worship is our fundamental reaction to this gracious kingdom that we enter. 
And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The gratitude that we have expresses itself in acceptable worship of this grace giver. Would you worship someone for whom you have no appreciation? No. Listen to songs on the radio today, and they go from intense appreciation to reckless worship. So many songs speak of heaven as being with their sin even other. That's the height of heaven. But no, that's not the height of heaven, as exciting as that relationship might be. The height of heaven is worshiping God for all eternity. That's what God calls us here, to right worship, to right doctrine and right living. Worship, reverence, and awe, these three words emphasize a profound adoration of God. I don't always quote the BCO in a sermon. In fact, I rarely do. Our book of church order. Chapter 47, section 8, has a good summary of what we are doing. It behooves God's people not only to come into his presence with a deep sense of awe at the thought of his perfect holiness and their own exceeding sinfulness, but also to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise for the great salvation which he has so graciously wrought for them through his only begotten Son and applied to them by the Holy Spirit. Awe, thanksgiving, praise because of grace. From first to last, dear ones, it is grace. It is grace, it is grace, it is grace, it is grace that is greater than all of our sin. We exist to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him, and we glorify and enjoy Him most in worship. As we struggle against the threefold enmity of the flesh, the world, and the devil, we worship. As we serve God with certainty of His victorious trajectory, we worship God. As we lean upon God's inspired word for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, we worship God. As we grow in our understanding of what we have come to, namely heavenly Mount Zion, we worship. So come, dear ones, in all that you are and all that you do, come, let us worship, let us bow down before our maker. He is our God. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we do seek to worship you with all awe, reverence, adoration, and we thank you for this word of of what we have come to. We thank you that Jesus Christ has paid it all for us, that he is our peace. He has made peace for us. What a joy this is, what grace it is. Transform us, we pray. Transform us more and more. May we have lives with more and more faith and more and more gratitude and more and more worship because you, God, alone are worthy of all worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.